Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My aim today is to redress a certain picture of Descartes' conception of the soul, one which makes it equivalent to a mind, a substance constituted wholly by self-aware thinking, the introduction of which, as a well-known textbook claims, shifted philosophical interest in self-knowledge from ethical matters to epistemological and metaphysical issues. The picture of Descartes' conception of the soul, which I will oppose, contains several strands, not all necessarily interconnected. As a somewhat general level, it tends to go together with the view that Descartes was an epistemological foundationalist, with the most basic foundation provided by the cogito, I think I exist, which is taken to be unquestionably certain. It also includes two claims proposed by different commentators in varying degrees of strength, that the mind is incorrigible regarding its own contents, and that it knows, or at least is aware, of all its contents. Jonathan Bennett, who is particularly radical in this respect, writes of the mind being, for Descartes, infallible and omniscient about its current activities. Some find Bennett's claim rather exaggerated. For Descartes, they hold achieving certainty about our own states is difficult, psychologically taxing, strenuous. Still, these are merely qualifications of the Cartesian doctrine of that the mind's contents are readily available for its introspection, which, when careful, different degrees of care, according to different commentators, yields certain self-knowledge understood as knowledge of one's own mental states. Further claims associated with a Cartesian view of the mind, which we will touch upon, are that its self-knowledge is a result of introspection, a peculiar non-sensorial perceptual act, but modeled on sensation, and that it is essentially discursive. So you obtain knowledge of a form, I exist, I am in pain, and, and the like. Some of what I'll say today will at least suggest significant qualifications of these claims. One interesting aspect of this Cartesian picture is brought out by Dick Moran. He moves seamlessly from talking about a Cartesian picture that includes radical claims of the mind's transparency to itself and introspective infallibility to talking about Descartes' picture as including these features. Moran appeals to Freud and psychoanalysis as a contrast. Indeed, if Descartes believed in the Cartesian thesis we have mentioned, he appears to have left no room in the mind for the unconscious. One can appreciate how a conception of self-knowledge that makes appeal to non-conscious mental states and structures and processes, such as Freud's and Moran's, would be fundamentally at odds with this Cartesian picture of the mind. So what we have is a shift from ethics to epistemology, foundationalism grounded on the cogito, a transparency, the transparency and epistemic privilege of the mind towards its own contents in introspection, the rejection of the unconscious. All these, it is claimed, result from Descartes or are directly found in him. I, I say some things here distinguishing what I attribute to Descartes from Cartesianism. Cartesianism has to do with the reception of Descartes. It's just basic history to distinguish between the reception of the author and the actual original texts. Unfortunately, in Cartesian studies, this is not very common, and people pass from Cartesian to Descartes, 
without any, any consideration. In fact, uh, one of the places where this lack of rigor is clear is in identifying the first person of the meditations as Descartes. When the proper way one is going to be strict is to distinguish the author from a character he's creating and the reader and the rest of the people involved in interacting with the text. This is important because a meditator undergoes a process which isn't necessarily the process that Descartes found at any particular point to be in. So I concentrate on the meditations. And again, I won't uh, uh, say much more as to why I do this. I think it's a canonical text for Descartes' metaphysical views and uh, in general for Descartes' thinking. Uh, it's a text he took long to, to publish, which he was very careful with the publication process, very unhappy with the first ed edition, took pains with the second and so on. Also, uh, make uh, stress this point that I'm talking about Descartes' soul. He used mens and anima interchangeably, mind and soul interchangeably. But mind and soul do not mean the same thing nowadays. And uh, looking at mens and saying, oh, mind, and then translating it by mind can help obscure what's going on here. We have philosophy of mind. We don't have philosophy of soul. And if you suggested that we needed to just interchangeably, you know, call it philosophy of soul, people would be annoyed because it doesn't mean the same thing. I think there's general agreement even amongst the churchmen that we have a mind. Uh, what do you do with a mind is a different thing. But there isn't general agreement amongst people, even philosophers, that we all have a soul. The words have changed, and uh, I prefer to stick to Descartes and call the mind a soul. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the soul. Now, I'm going to lay out a, a, a vast hermeneutical uh, propedeutic to what I want to do, which actually contains the elements uh, of my argument. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I go on about how to read the meditations and what the meditations are. A lot of what I say depends on these points. Okay, so what are the meditations? And uh, I'm rushing and summarizing, so uh, I'll just go ahead and maybe I'll stop for a second to see where I am. Uh, so uh, what are the meditations? And uh, if you ask this, people say they're obviously a book. You say, yeah, but what kind of book? Uh, and then they'll say it's a philosophy book. And uh, sure, but uh, you can start to move ahead if you point out that philosophy books uh, come in all sorts of shapes, uh, that sometimes philosophers write poems, uh, sometimes they write essays. Uh, one very famous philosopher uh, wrote dialogues. Uh, as classes like to stress not only dialogues, but he never wrote in his own voice, at least not what we have. So, uh, you know, there, there, there are issues here. Uh, 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 that um, uh, Now, one might say this doesn't really matter because philosophy has to do with discursive argument. So you want to see and, and the consequences of argument, the, the thesis that you get out of argument. So what you want to see is, okay, he might have written a poem, but when you read it as a philosopher, you extract from the poem the arguments and the thesis. That's what you do. That's the way to read it. So it doesn't really matter what genre the meditation falls in. You read it as an essay. You read it like, a, like, like if you were actually putting forward just the arguments and the doctrines. And 
you go from there. So uh, you might say even of, uh, you know, something along these lines, you might take, okay, take Lucretius on the nature of things. Uh, the poetic form seems to be uh, properly superficial in a sense. Uh, some expla explanation of it is, well, you know, it makes it easier to remember. And he wanted to write something that people could remember so that they could think about it and know how to live and, and things of this sort. Um, so it's all external. Really, the, the core is um, that's more difficult to do, say, with Parmenides. I mean, after all, you have to then dismiss the proem. I was taken to see the goddess who told me you must know things and then reveal this to me. Okay, so is the point here that that was just rhetorical or ancient, archaic, you know, maybe people in Italy at that time thought that way, but we don't need to do that. We can just forget about that and take the arguments. Well, that I am going to propose is something we cannot do to start with because it does affect how we are to take what he is telling us are revelations from a goddess. The, the case of Plato, whom I just alluded to, is even uh, more interesting. He never writes declaratively. Why? One quick answer is because he's diffident about making straightforward assertions, you know, which he's careful. But, but that can't be all. And if you read the Phaedrus, for example, you realize there's much more going on here that is captured in the arguments. And part of what's going on is we are being shown something. That is crucial in many of the dialogues. That is showing us something as opposed to saying it. And furthermore, in the context of a writer who is supposed to have elaborated, I'm, I'm not denying that he might have, uh, but is supposed to have elaborated a theory of forms and then you want to find the theory of forms into his writings and you find myths and legends and, and stories. Uh, you wonder what is going on here? Why is he not just giving us a theory? And uh, one possible answer is uh, there's more to say here about the relation between understanding and language, what Plato thought of it. There's all sorts of things going on that are not explicitly stated in the text. So let's move on to the meditations. Okay, so like Plato's writings, the meditations abound in science that it should not be approached as one would a philosophical essay, aiming to lay out theses and their demonstrations. To begin with, it is written in the first person. This is a strange choice. I'll skip over my analysis of this. Uh, people uh, respond, uh, following some Cartesian text, that this is done to engage the reader. And uh, to, so the reader assumes the arguments. But of course, uh, this can't be everything that is involved here, even if the arguments are extremely complicated. Uh, I, I, there's much more to say here, but one crude way of putting this is it'd be very strange to write a very complicated mathematical argument in the first person so that you engage a reader, make sure that he follows the points. You don't do that. So, so if, if there is some engagement of the reader, it can't merely be in order for the reader to follow the arguments or to extract the arguments. Okay. Uh, as I say, I'm moving along. So one way to address this is to say, okay, the meditations contain uh, what people describe as cognitive exercises. 
they do want you to engage in a little bit of cognitive exercising to change the way that you go about acquiring beliefs, thinking about things, arguing, and so on. So there is a ter therapeutic element to the meditations. But at the end of the day, all this therapy is at the service of constructing and understanding good arguments. So, okay, uh, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to, uh, since I, I want to leave room for discussion, I'm not going to uh, do more on this and just move ahead. It, there's comments to make about the point of the Cartesian therapy, uh, about what it involves, what it demands, what it says about human nature, but uh, I'll, I'll just move along. Maybe that'll come up uh, uh, later. Uh, so, okay. What is involved in this Cartesian therapy? Uh, what is involved in this Cartesian therapy is, has to do with overcoming trust or dependence on sensation. And Descartes says that himself. Uh, so basically, the idea is uh, we undergo these cognitive exercises so that we become more intellectually pure, so to say, and leave aside our trust and dependence on the senses and see what comes out of that. So that uh, in the end, uh, the therapy will uh, strenuous and difficult because it involves overcoming uh, embodiment, which Descartes himself says we can never in this life completely overcome. Eventually we come to a position where we can see what he wants, to, uh, what he wants us to see discursively and argumentatively. This would explain partly uh, some features of the meditations that, uh, again, call, question, call into question it being a pure essay. For example, the emotion that it displays. The meditator is possessed by anguish uh, uh, and, and other explicit emotions. Uh, and and one, again, wonders how that uh, uh, goes together with pure philosophical argument as we understand it and as most people understand it nowadays. Uh, after conceding that the meditations are a manual for peculiar cognitive therapy, it may still be argued that its ultimate purpose is the articulation of sound arguments in support of true discursive doctrine. The process of establishing philosophical truth may be less straightforward and considerably more complex than is the case in the usual article or essay, as it involves profoundly changing the mind. But the recognition that the meditations involves a reader in a process of overcoming deeply ingrained habits and prejudices does not alter the fact that the end result of the exercise is discursive doctrine supposed, supported by discursive argument. Briefly put, the meditation on therapy takes a reader to better engagement with rational inquiry and discursive truth. It is nothing but a propedeutic to philosophy as usual. Okay. Yet, I am going to claim this does not fully address the problem is with the text. In particular, and going directly to the core of our difficulties, I'm not going to elaborate very much, we'll just go directly to a difficult passage. There is the extraordinary but commonly neglected rapture at the center of the meditations. I will repeat it for you in case you don't remember it. I wish to remain here for some time in the contemplation of God himself to ponder on his attributes and to gaze with wonder and adoration on the beauty of this immense light, so far as the eye of my darkened intellect can bear it. For just as we believe through faith, 
that the supreme happiness of the next life consists solely in the contemplation of the divine majesty, so we discover by experience, now we are discovering by experience, that this same contemplation, though much less perfect, enables us to know the greatest joy and fulfillment of which we are capable in this life. Moreover, this passage does not constitute a break within the book, either stylistically or, as I have argued elsewhere, in terms of content. That is, there is a question as to what that passage is doing there in the meditations, and that is a complicated question because one thing that we discover in the meditations is that the author, I've ignored here the distinction between for all purposes, author, meditator, and, and, and reader, that, that the author is anticipating things a meditator could not possibly know and throwing them there so that the reader who is taken on the garb of the meditator will take them in and they would start working within the reader. And that's one of the things that's happening with the rapture. In my reading of the meditations, the rapture finds a proper place in the fifth meditation, not in the in the, in, in, in the third, but it's, it has a point there. We've already encountered God a posteriori. Uh, Descartes will eventually think that, that those arguments don't hold, uh, that they require an a priori supplement, a kind of scotus in this. Uh, so uh, so uh, it's thrown there, not because that is its proper place, and that complicates things, but still it is there. There is this rapture in the meditations. Okay. Uh, Constantly, the meditator alludes to time spent in contempla contemplation or meditation activity outside of the course explicitly laid out in the text, but continues with it. The citation is only a rather striking example, striking on account of its mystical overtones. Our question now is, how does this quasi-mystical quasi rapture, the greatest fulfillment possible in this life, fit in with the rest of the text? And what bearing does it have on the question we are pursuing regarding the nature of this book? Is it just an aside, perhaps a rhetorical embellishment? Is it, as some commentator has suggested, uh, merely Descartes trying to please some of his readers, particularly those who may have objected to his scientific proposals, even censored them, uh, readers with power to do things to him, uh, on account of religious and theological scruples? This is a common move. Uh, that's, we should discount those passages. In fact, uh, one notable Cartesian commentator who is... Uh, quite uh, capable in terms of the work he's done for uh, Descartes' biography and so on, Desmond Clark, discounts the whole of the meditations almost. It, it was just driven by his fear of the church. He was really a scientist. And if he was a metaphysician, it, it's better to learn from the principles, the scientific metaphysics, than it is from the meditations, which was something he did just uh, out of fear and out of a misguided idea that he could get the church to support him. Uh, I find that reading, I'm sorry to say, ludicrous. But uh, I, I, if you're interested, there is a review of Desmond Clark's biography that I wrote some time ago. I am now sorry I wrote it, actually. But it, it's a little bit too harsh. Uh, so we are inquiring into the nature and point of the meditations. I hold we can make sense of the whole text, including these, without resorting to these moves. Now, like any other book, this one has many aims. Among them are to refute skepticism, to provide a method for the acquisition of knowledge, to discursive knowledge, to ground lasting science and set it on the path towards fruitful development, to reveal the true nature of things. Some are stressed in the title, 
in which the existence of God and the either distinction of the human soul from the body or the immortality of the soul. Uh, it's now clear that uh, he didn't, he, he, perhaps it's not absolutely clear, but the immortality of the soul was probably a Masan uh, introduction. It wasn't his directly. So that when he goes back and says, just, I just demonstrated the distinction between mind and body, he's not really backing from something he overtly held. Uh, but that's, you take whatever title you want. And we have seen that he takes the reader to a contemplation of God. The Meditations on First Philosophy is, as all of this suggests, and its very title indicates, a manual for metaphysical meditation, an activity sharing the objects, if not the methods, or perhaps to some extent the points of traditional religious meditation. I mean, think of a, a book that I think is related to Descartes, uh, and we can establish a sort of historical connection. Uh, the Inner Castle, Therese of Avila. Uh, if, if you look at the Inner Castle as meditations on the soul and God, you find, well, it seems to be doing the same thing Descartes is doing, except that she is doing it from a religious standpoint, while Descartes thinks that it can be done purely naturally or intellectually without recourse to grace. Okay, here I'm going to skip over one track of this paper, but I need to mention. There is a, uh, there's a huge textual problem in Descartes' corpus. It's really enormous. Before the Meditations, and shortly after the publication of the Meditations, all the way to the second edition, he's asking people to read it carefully, to devote a lot of time, be, being stressing with Marsan, send it to, the, and, and being annoyed that he's sending it to people who wouldn't understand it, like Hobbes and, and, and Gazendi. He's very worried about how the book will be received, that people read it carefully. You need to spend a year in the first meditation before you can move on to the next one and so on. Okay. Five years later, he's telling people, don't read it. Literally. He's writing, if you're going to read it, read it quickly. Don't do anything more than I did. In fact, it's better if you just go and do the principles and forget about the meditations. Now, this isn't just one letter where he says this. This is an attitude he starts having, and you can see it in several letters. So, okay, did he change his mind? Uh, I mean, this is serious. How are we going to take the meditations, given that the author is recommending a few years after its publication to not read it, to forget about it? He allows it to be translated into French. Interestingly, as I mentioned later in the paper, there is a, there is a significant, for our purposes, uh, difference between the French translation and the Latin original in the second replies. Uh, he takes out from the French a passage where he speaks of all the benefits apart from grounding science that you get from meditation. Okay, he, he decides that better not go into the French. Okay, so what's happening here? Uh, my answer is that it has to do with reception. It has to do with the reception of the meditations. Descartes became very unhappy with the way that the work was being received, and he shifts from thinking that this kind of metaphysical reflection, if uh, handled by really serious people, will lead to real science and to his work being recognized as such. Uh, that's not working. People are not taking it that way. They're not understanding what I'm saying. And one case is Arnaud. Uh, I'll later 
mention. Uh, so I, I still have 20 minutes. Is that 25 minutes? Yeah, yeah okay. So uh, I, I want to leave room for discussion, so I'm just going to uh, uh, move ahead. Okay. Uh, so basically, uh, since I do want to have discussion, I'm going to uh, just give you a few of the ideas without reading them. Uh, uh, the Meditations is a, is a manual for meditation. And meditation in the Meditations isn't an unconnected series of exercises. It isn't even a series of exercises where you can only undertake the second one once you've done the first one, and then you move on to the third one and so on. It's not that kind of process. The process has a unity. It's, it's a process where you can't just take one part and say, okay, let's look at the cognitive exercise of the first meditation or of the first and the beginning of the second meditation. That's not the way to read the text. This is a manual for meditating, which he stresses will require you to undertake a whole process, which is difficult, long-lasting, and, and will be very demanding, very taxing. So, okay, so it's a manual for meditating. On what? On God and the soul. These are the objects that are introduced in the title, Meditations on First Philosophy. That God would be an object of First Philosophy is no issue. Uh, people at the time would have been very happy with that. His putting the soul as an object of first philosophy is a move that is controversial. If you go and read the first of the metaphysical disputations, there is a wonderful translation done by somebody from Catholic U that has just come out of uh, Suarez's metaphysical disputations. The first one is on the nature of first philosophy, on the nature of metaphysics. So this is a book that would have come out at the time Descartes was studying. Uh, he we know he knew it. It's the only book that he explicitly quotes from. Uh, so, so he was aware of this. Uh, if, you, if you read Suarez, uh, soul is not part of first philosophy. <laughs> it's the, the objects of first philosophy. On the other hand, uh, since he wants to make in material things the objects of first philosophy, and uh, he doesn't think the human soul is wholly immaterial, but it's not either wholly material, you can find room for it there. Okay, and, and Descartes would, of course, uh, uh, move from that. Okay, so we have this meditational text on God and the soul. Now, the process that unfolds in the meditations requires a propedeutic. The propedeutic is a first meditation. The first meditation is clearly a preparation of the mind to engage in meditation. And Descartes says that. It isn't like I'm saying something that he doesn't explicitly say. Hobbes made fun of him for engaging in skepticism and producing no new arguments. Indeed, not even the evil demon is a new argument. The evil demon is found in Suarez, uh, evil angel. Uh, so, uh, and, and the possibility of God deceiving us was a medieval theme. So it's not like he's doing anything new there and Hobbes is making fun of him. And he, of course, responds in kind and dismisses Hobbes in Anglais. Uh, he didn't like him, uh, had already exchanged with him and, and gotten very annoyed at Langlais. Uh, he wasn't prejudiced fully. Uh, he, he comes towards the end of his life, he, he gets to see De Kive and thinks it's a great book and then says, Hobbes should never have been doing metaphysics and epistemology. He's a good political philosopher, he'd stick to that. So it isn't that he's completely unable to reach out to Hobbes. He never really concedes much to Gazendi in that way. 
So in, in, in any case, what he does is he responds in kind and says, yes, of course I know these are not original arguments, but that wasn't the point. The point was to lead the mind away from sensation. This is what he says. He also gives, you know, and gives me an opportunity to refute the skeptics and to gain solidity for my philosophy, but the main purpose of skepticism is to lead the mind away from sensation, something he stresses over and over again. Now, interestingly, Okay, so we have a propedeutic. Uh, in that propedeutic meditation, things are thrown in, of course, that will later reemerge. The most famous is the possibility of divine deception. And one of the things that you miss if you don't understand what is going on there is that the possibility of divine deception is then set aside. So it's set aside explicitly in the first meditation. Divine deception, and then I don't really understand what's going on here because this God is supposed to be good. How could he? And then he moves on to summarize, refer, introduces the evil demon, and what he summarizes is deception through sensation. That's the, the last two paragraphs of the meditation. They, they don't include any doubts now about triangles having three sides. Now, that would be bad. Okay, so it's true, I can't really articulate the argument very well now, but maybe somebody else could articulate it better and this would destroy what you're doing. No, he retakes it in the third meditation. At the beginning of the third meditation, he recalls, the meditator recalls the possibility that God is deceptive. Okay, so the first meditation is propedeutic, but it contains some of what will happen later. Now, the second meditation, we do have a text of Descartes where he says it's the best way to exercise the intellect. So, okay, the first meditation allows you to gain possession of your intellect freed from the sensation. If you want to exercise it, somebody tells him why I want to exercise it. Well, the, I'd know of no better exercise than the second meditation. So the second med even the second meditation has a certain propedeutic element to it. The meditator isn't fully in possession of. This will come in the text, uh, out in the text also, uh, in, in something that I'll say in a moment. Okay, so what is happening in the second meditation is the beginning of meditation. The cogito is not the end point of anything. For Descartes, the cogito is the first encounter the meditator has with herself the first intellectual object that you have there to perceive and examine and, and start to discur on. So the, all the part of the, of the second meditation that ends up with, okay, so I'm a thinking thing and a thinking thing is a thing that doubts and so on, should be read with the next sentence in mind or the ne if it's not exactly the next sentence, one of the next sentences will exist. Okay, I'm now beginning to have something of a better understanding of myself, Aliquanto and Incipio. Incipio, I begin now to understand who I am or what I am. I begin to understand, it's not a, I haven't done anything yet. I've started to understand. And furthermore, not only uh, uh, started to understand, uh, to understand a, a bit, somewhat. So we cannot take uh, the, the, uh, the uh, the uh, cogito as a, 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 a finalized statement of my nature. 
look, I'm just encountering myself. I, I have to do some more work to discover who I, what I am and, and what is involved in thinking. And we get uh, some of that in the piece of wax. Uh, the piece of wax is where he says, I, okay, I think I understand the piece of wax better. So let's concede and look at this and see whether I understand the piece of wax better than I do myself. Now, there are many things that go on there with a piece of wax that are uh, essential to what happens in the third meditation. But part of what will happen in the meditations is you get a dialectic going. And uh, the dialectic is, uh, is uh, uh, complicated. It isn't just one dialectic going. One dialectic is between perception of myself and perception of God. And, and that doesn't finalize in the third meditation. Uh, look at the fourth meditation. Uh, in, in the fourth meditation, as I'll point out, uh, well, we'll have to rush. Uh, okay, so, uh, it, it, so I'm not going to read anything. I'll just tell you and then we can discuss. Okay, so uh, in, in, the, in, in the fourth meditation, the meditator discovers her freedom. And in discovering her freedom, she discovers a divine-like attribute in her. Again, we are told by Descartes that there is something that I have as perfectly as God would have it, and that is my free will. Of course, he then qualifies and says the scope of my will is not the scope of God's will because God has an omniscient understanding, and my will is not effective. It's effective only for a few things and depending on for its effectivity. But in terms of the disposition of the mind, of the mental act, my will is absolutely free. I read that, and here I'm uh, uh, rushing uh, over things, uh, I read that as involving the claim that the mind or the soul is omnipotent with respect to its free states. They are produced out of nothing with a mere willing. You will, that's it, you have a free state. Now, I have other views about Cartesian causation that link with this. Namely, uh, I think the only kind of cause that he thought was metaphysically real is the cause of an omnipotent agent. Uh, and the explanation is simple, it's omnipotent. Uh, that means that when it wills, it's done. Uh, it wills, therefore it's done. Uh, and it, there's nothing left to explain. He offers no account of causation other than this one. And he makes fun of people thinking that there can be causal interaction between two balls when one stops and the other moves. He says, what are people thinking, that the movement jumps from one wall to the other? He, he was an occasionalist, that's how I read him. So reading him as an occasionalist, I, I can say he did have one notion of causation and he did think that some creatures had that causal power, so he was a restricted, a limited occasionalist in that sense. And he didn't, he doesn't confront the problems with freedom that Malebranche does. A completely radical occasionists have a problem. How do you explain free acts and how do you make people responsible for anything? But okay. Uh, so that's one dialectic moves between the soul and God. Uh, another dialectic uh, is, is manifested by the process itself in the meditator. The meditator is being transformed as the meditation advances. That is, the meditation allows the meditator to see better, and seeing better allows for better arguments. Uh, 
There are arguments that lead to conclusions that allow the meditators to see more. So there's a, there's a going back and forth here, argumentatively and meditatively. Uh, okay, let me, uh, since we, we only have 10 minutes for discussion, let me uh, conclude with uh, one point that I do want to make. Uh, oh yes, uh, the movement from ethics to epistemology and metaphysics. I think that there has been a move in the way we discuss self-knowledge, a way, in, particularly in, in contemporary Anglo-Saxon philosophy, uh, away from the way that self-knowledge is discussed in uh, ancient literature. Uh, and that could be cast as away from the uh, ethical to the metaphysical and epistemological. Uh, what I want to say is that this is not something that is found in Descartes. If anything, it's a Cartesian accretion. Now, with respect to ethics and the meditations, okay, I've already given you some evidence. Okay, in the meditations, you reach the contemplation of God. And, and that doesn't seem to be uh, Cassir in purely epistemic terms. The greatest joy, sort of like being in the beatific vision. I mean, there's more going on there. Okay, in the fourth replies, Arno tells him to take out uh, the claims about the mind or the soul being forced by the vision of the good. He says, no, you're talking about error. You're talking about knowledge, not ethics, and this would be theologically controversial. So forget, take that out. Descartes responds to that, ignoring the suggestion to take it out, doesn't take it out. Okay, and then uh, here's a very important uh, piece of evidence against the likes of Desmond Clark, because basically what they say is Descartes did this to please the church. He realized it didn't work, so he went along, you know, went a different route. He was really interested in the science. Okay, in 1647, this is well after he's already told people not to read the meditation, not to do it. The Queen of Sweden asks Descartes through his friend Chanou, who would be the ambassador who got him, or sort of ambassador, uh, who got him to go to Sweden, uh, a close friend of his. And that's a very important fact, that he was a close friend. He knew where Descartes was. Descartes would keep his address anonymous. Chanou knew he would inform Chanou. Chanou would go visit him with his wife, and they would go out for trips together. So they were close friends. Okay, Chanou communicates to Descartes this question from the Queen of Sweden. Can we love God through perfectly natural means? And this, Descartes says, I have no doubt. And then he lays out something that you can see as a summary of a strand in the meditations. This is a way to come to the law of God. It's very difficult, he says. It, it's strenuous. Not everybody can do it. It, it requires a lot of, uh, of, of, uh, of cognitive and personal exercises to get to this point. But once you get to it, you will come to the law of God. And he's clear about what this will mean. It will transform you. Because if you come to the law of God through these means, you will be incapable of evil. You won't, in fact, want to change anything that happens to you, even death and illnesses and other terrible things, because you know they are coming from God. You will only worry about that about which you are responsible, namely the free states of your mind. The rest, you won't be called to have to answer for.
Okay, so um, let me conclude with that. There is no abandoning, or at least not in the meditations, of the ethical dimension of self-knowledge in favor of a metaphysical and epistemological approach. That, that is just simply a way in which he comes to be read. Uh, and, and the story of his reception, we could touch on it, maybe, uh, bears out what I'm saying now, but I'll have to finish there. I'm sorry I had prepared something that would have taken about an hour and five minutes to read, and that would have been too much. Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, we have about 15 minutes or so for questions. So would one of our forum members like to begin? Are you proposing that Descartes wants the meditations to be read more for a spiritual or ethical purpose than a scientific one? Or are you saying that it's both equally or something different? were uh, really. So uh, I, I wouldn't want to answer that question. I don't know what was more important for him. I don't even know, to tell you the truth, because I have thought about this. This is something that people will say. Uh, he was more of a scientist. More. I, I don't really know how to know about everything that I want, which comes first, which, comes more, which I want more. Uh, he was a scientist. He was very concerned with the development of science because he thought this is what will be good for everybody. Th this will be a, a gift for humanity. Uh, it'll, you know, he, he thinks at one point that he can uh, arrive at a position where he'll be curing, showing how to cure any illness. He says, I'll live 150 years. Eventually, he comes to a conclusion that he should just not fear death. He, he does give a lot of importance to, 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 um, to science. He also thinks that you don't need to do the meditations in order to ground science if somebody has already done it and science is, is going along. Then you don't need to recover you know, the initial intuitions that led to it. Uh, but he obviously thought very highly uh, of the other benefits that meditation could bring. You know, the vision of God is not a small achievement. And uh, uh, let me say a little bit about Barul and Therese of Avila. Cardinal Barul, he introduces the Carmelites into, into uh, France, the discalced Carmelites into France, uh, and is a prominent figure in the renewal of French spirituality. Okay, he meets with Descartes in 1628. He goes to this famous meeting that people have mis, uh, I think, understood and interpreted massively. Okay, he goes to the meeting, and uh, there's this crank there who Descartes confronts and puts right and says a few things about what he thinks. And Berul is so impressed that he asked to meet Descartes and they met afterwards. And apparently what Berul did from third parties who, uh, who we have some testimony of is encourage Descartes to, know, to, to make his philosophy known. This is really important. This is a great contribution to the advancement of learning and so on. You should do this. Unfortunately, Berul dies. And uh, Descartes had the, uh, the, the uh, reputation of not being, of being a, rec a recluse, of not writing much. So we don't really know what comes out of, of, of the exchange, but there is some evidence of a connection with Theresa Avila there. Professor Takata, thank you for the talk. So my question is this, is you've laid out this reading and it seems reasonably plausible that in the first few books, Descartes is up to a spiritual exercise or a meditation. You know, he would have been familiar with the meditations of the Ignatians, so all of this sort of makes sense. But 
If that's what he's up to in the text, why do you think he spends the last two books focusing so heavily on material objects, on the essence of what it is to be a material I, thing, saying, their existence? Yeah, okay. I'm not saying that that is the purpose of the book. I mean, I, I laid out all the aims of the book uh, to refute skepticism, to uh, uh, find certain knowledge, to uh, um, allow us to know how to go about acquiring beliefs. And, and there are several aims. like. Like many books, uh, many books are many books in one. So, and this is one which is that, and you can read it as a reputation of skepticism if that's what you want. He actually says that that's one of the things he wants to do or that he does there. He, he puts it as an accretion, as an aside, and it also allows me to refute these pestering characters, the, the meditators. So, so I wouldn't say that there is only one aim to the meditation meditations. Uh, one of the aims is to ground science. So the way I read the meditations is, okay, the meditations allows us to reach, to, uh, to, to reach this position where we are in, in a kind of intellectual perception of extension and material and, and the nature of material things. Uh, there's, this is a complicated subject, uh, exactly how to take Descartes uh, conception of the ma or, 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 of matter here, but so the way I read it is in the fifth meditation you start a transition back into the world, back into science, so to say. And the fifth and the sixth meditation is putting the meditator fully back in the world. Now, here's one interesting question: How does he refute the literal dream argument in the sixth meditation? in the way he could have refuted in the first meditation, namely, it just doesn't look the same. You know, there is a way of distinguishing being awake from being sleeping, which is straightforward. That's what he says. Why does he say that in the first meditation? That's a question people should ask if you're reading it as an essay. Why wait until the end of the meditation? So of course, there's a, there's a, I read the dream argument in two stages, and there's a second more difficult argument, which is how do you know that waking states are not like dreaming in not corresponding to anything outside your mind? Uh, so that just distinguishing between waking and dreaming won't do. Uh, okay, so, so uh, again, what's happening in the second half of the fifth meditation, the last meditation, is we're going back into a world and we're going into science. So that's my answer. So I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's merely a, a spiritual treatise or that it's only a spiritual. I do think that it's spiritual dimension. Again, if you're going to reach a contemplation of God, that seems to be a greater achievement than grounding physics. Important as that is. Certainly, if I were, you know, in the 16th century and I was given to choose. Professor Scott, thank you so much. Um, I think your interpretation must be your interpretation must be uh, right on with the sense that God is the, the aim of this thing. I think it's just an historical fact that we just don't read these early modern texts much. If you read Leibniz, Malebranche, any of these guys, it's God saturated. And I suspect that's not because of political motives, but because of uh, they actually believed they believed and they thought this was, as you say, very important. And we're just downstream of that, and we just don't read this way. Um, I'm interested though that the introduction of the soul as a subject in first philosophy. So again, you have a sense of Suarez is not focusing on this. Um, Ignatius Loyola, of course, is focused on this. So I'm wondering, this is a historical question, I suppose, or a methodological question. Descartes putting the soul as the object of, as one of the objects of first philosophy. 
I'd always taken the introduction there as part of responding to the Vatican asking for immortality, proofs of the soul, and, mm-hmm. and proofs of God. You've said, though, the immortality soul issue is not one of his main ones. So what do you what do you which, what would you say is that the reason for the move to the soul there uh, as an object of first philosophy? Well, uh, I, I I don't I wouldn't say that it's not one of the main ones. Uh, be, I mean, he he would have uh, he would have come down on the idea that he can't demonstrate it, but he's made everything available for those who believe to be able to take on the belief without regret, so to say, without second thoughts. Uh, that's the position he arrives at. So he's not denying the immortality of the soul when he goes on the distinction between soul and body. He's just saying, look, I can't demonstrate it. All I can demonstrate if I'm going to be strict is the distinction between mind and body. And then if, if the soul is not immortal, it's because God annihilates it. Uh, okay. Uh, so the, 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 uh, uh, that's... Uh, so, so yes. So, so he is responding, perhaps, to all the, all the. I mean, after all, uh, there had been uh, some famous books denying the immortality of the soul. So, so there was a there was a movement, you know, and, and he would fit there. But no, I, I think it's part of the of his Platonic meditational conception of 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 uh, philosophy and, and metaphysics. Uh, so he's he's he is in a sense deeply reacting against Aristotle and the Aristotelians uh, in a way that is it's true that I have uh, it, it's true that I, I don't yeah it's true that I have stressed the connection between Descartes and the Scholastics I haven't done anything really to reveal more than had been revealed a long time before I came along by people like Gilson and others. Uh, uh, so th- that's true, but, but I, I wouldn't uh, want to, uh, I, I would want to stress in my work on the relation between Descartes and Scholastics other claims that I always make, which is it, it's a radically platonic relationship to the Scholastics, okay? He might be taking these concepts from them, but he is in a very fundamental way completely at odds with them. Uh, he's not a hylomorphist, not at all. He thinks hylomorphism is, it, it should go out uh, completely. He's not a sensorialist. He's against them on the idea that you first know something exists and then you inquire to its nature. No, you start from the nature and then you can know that it exists. And he, he's just completely at odds in a platonic, in what I call a platonic way. Uh, so. And one last question. So, uh, so I hope I have answered your question. That is, uh, you know, uh, I take care of the soul to be at the center of, say, the Phaedrus. You know, to be beautiful within. That's the aim of the Phaedrus. That's, uh, that's what he wants, what Socrates wants Phaedrus to be. Okay, in that sense, this is a similar work. Uh, uh, take the Prosologion. The Prosologion is overtly about God, but it's also about myself and about self-knowledge. Where have I come from? Where am I going to go to? And then if you do not focus on the argument, but on the whole book, you know, remember the arguments at the beginning, there's 23 other chapters. It's a book with 23 chapters. Uh, then, then you see how there is a relation between uh, self-knowledge and knowledge of God. Here's one way to put it very succinctly, okay? The cogito, is cast in doubt, or at least possible doubt, 
casting doubt on the assumption of an evil God at the beginning of the third meditation. Okay, that's, that, that's a striking text because a cogito, it would be easy for God to make it that I don't exist when I think I think, when I think I exist. One wonders how, how easy that would be and whether it makes any sense, but, but that is what is claimed there. Okay, so the cogito requires that I know that God is not evil. If, if I don't know that God is not evil, I don't really know that I exist. Now, that, that makes the cogito dependent on knowledge of God. And this is one very quick, simple way of saying, okay, knowledge of God is connected to knowledge of the self. Okay. Thank you, for Professor Sakata. That was yes. a, a very interesting presentation. I, my question perhaps might be anticipating some of what we talk about tomorrow, so maybe we'll have additional thoughts then. But I'm wondering, um, what does Descartes, so given what you said about um, what do you think uh, contemplation is in the meditations and kind of that being the, the end of science, um, what, do you, what do you think his idea of, what, does he have a conception of the resurrection of the body? Does he think that there's a, and, and if he doesn't, I guess, what, what's the point of the incarnation for him? You know, is there a redemption of human nature in a holistic way? I don't really know, and I don't know that we can know. He does believe in the resurrection of the body. He believes in heaven, and there are some texts where he mentions it. I don't know what his conception was. I do not know of texts where he wonders, okay, given that our body is going to decompose, and then maybe some parts of it will be parts of somebody else, how, how am I going to have my body? I'm here being reminded of Peter Geach saying that if one atom, of my body uh, is present in my body in heaven, then you, I can say it's the same body. It doesn't matter if all the other atoms are elsewhere. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, and I really don't know that Descartes discusses the resurrection in this way. So I wouldn't be able to, to answer that question. I think he, he believed in the resurrection of the body. Uh, and uh, beyond that, I, I don't really know what to say. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.